Is, is this Clark, this uh, interstellar comet? Right? I mean, yeah, big news. I don't see Clark. Oh, maybe he's still sleeping. Dad. <laughs> Some of Clark's larger fragments are now expected to enter our atmosphere. That's right. I know this are just. What are they saying? More of the same. first chunks is about to hit. It's only part of it. It's going in the ocean. Would you look at that? Wait, what is the explosion? She's got family down in Castroville. Captain, why are you doing this? She needs to laugh and dream. She needs new memories. Roads closed. Is that the law? It is now. Captain, you, Johanna. I do not have a clue as to the care of a child. It's a photograph. It's my wife. You can certainly handle a horse. That there's a horse. Hoss. Captain. Captain. Make no mistake. Captain. Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host, Rob Wallace, and as always, I'm truly delighted to be joined by my fellow co-host, Mr. Rob Daniel. And as always, it is a pleasure beyond measure to be here. Well, uh, it's been a little while, I think, since we since we podded, though, you know, time has continues to have lost all meaning. So this, if you told me that we'd done the Wonder Woman pod, it wasn't even the Wonder Woman, it was WandaVision. Yes, that, 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 the, uh, the gift that keeps on giving my inability to distinguish between WandaVision and Wonder Woman. That did make me chuckle. On that episode, you said it had been a while since the last episode, when I think it had been about 10 days. On this one, it has been a while. I think, as of recording, that was over three weeks ago. So we owe our listeners a new episode. Um, yeah, I so say it has been, what, that we watched, that was off the first two episodes of WandaVision, and we've now finished episode six? That's right, yeah. It's pretty good, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I think it took a little while to kind of get into its stride in terms of using the sitcom elements in in sort of in balance with the uh, the sort of the wider universe. But no, I'm I'm I've been really impressed by it. Although I would quibble that if last season was if last episode was meant to be '90s sitcoms, Malcolm in the Middle doesn't really qualify. Yes, that's right. I was thinking that if anything to have had a '90s one, because you kind of think it would be Friends if they had a '90s sitcom, because Malcolm was 2000, I think. Uh, when that started, or around then. And uh, obviously, you know, um, once that's done, we've got Loki. No, I think, no, is it, is it Falcon and the Winter Soldier first? I could, you know, That's right, yeah. I think I could get into this whole Marvelous TV thing. You know, who, who needs cinemas? Luckily, no one, because they're not going to exist anymore. <laughs> Please don't let that be true. <laughs> no. That's, uh, yeah, it, it feels like a particularly bleak joke to be making, you know, on a, on a, uh, a, a podcast that would at some point, where I'd quite like to it returned to being based around the mainly around the cinema experience. I mean, as, as lovely as it is watching these things at home by myself on my laptop, never leaving, just staring. 
staring. Star- oh, sorry, where was I? Um, <laughs> so what are we talking about today then, Rob? Today, I believe that we are talking about News of the World, the uh, the new Tom Hanks done a Western film. Um, we are also talking about, blimey, what was the other big one? We, we, I think we've got four, two of which you, I don't think you've seen, and actually five, one of which I haven't seen and two of which you haven't seen. Yes, I think we're going to be talking about Greenland as well. Greenland, that was it. And I will also be touching upon Judas and the Black Messiah and Falling. And I will be talking about the documentary Assassins. So shall we start with a bang and go with Greenland? Yes, let's start with uh, start with a bang and go with Greenland. This is a Gerard Butler kind of disaster movie, and you'd be you'd be forgiven for thinking, ooh, maybe you know, you know, he doesn't exactly have pedigree in that. Given that uh, it was a few years ago now, uh, Geostorm, a film that I described as dumb as a bag of rocks and about as fun as having those rocks thrown at you. So, and I think you were being very generous with that. That looked like a film that had its budget cancelled. Um, halved a day before shooting and they thought, oh, well, we just have to keep on making it then, don't we? That was an odd film, that was. Yeah, because after, after a certain point, the scale massively ramps down and it just turns into murder on the ISS. Yeah, it's really weird, that, isn't it? It's like, this isn't actually about what the trailer says it's going to be about. And also, murder on the ISS, where it's... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out a spoiler now. It's Robert Sheehan, who, to what's done the murder, the only other recognisable actor who isn't the victim is the one what done the murder. It's like, oh, where's Robert Sheehan gone from this group shot? Oh, someone else is dead, and it's not Robert Sheehan. I wonder who could have done it. <laughs> it was just so weird, that film. It was so obvious what was going on. Chekhov's Robert Sheehan. That's right, yes, it was that, wasn't it? Well, the IMDb synopsis for Greenland is very succinct. A family struggles for survival in the face of a cataclysmic natural disaster. Let's put a little bit of flesh on that. So, yes... Gerard Butler, who I'm going to say his name like that all the time, um, he plays John Garrity, who is a structural engineer who builds skyscrapers. He's having marital problems with his wife, who's played by Marina Baccarin. They have a son uh, called Nathan, who's played by Roger Dale Floyd. He's diabetic, which becomes a subplot as the film goes on. Um, A comet is forecast to pass by earth very very closely so you'll be able to see it even in broad daylight it soon transpires that all the predictions of where the fragments of this comet are going to land on earth are wildly out and it's actually much more of a threat to life on earth than they thought so garrity gets a presidential alert on his phone saying that he's been selected to be taken to um, a secret location when it becomes obvious that this comet could actually be a planet-killing threat. From that, a tale is told of him trying to get his family to safety. It's directed by Rick Roman War, who did the last of the Olympus Has Fallen films, Angel Has Fallen, which I haven't seen. But he also did a couple of really good thrillers. He did the rock film Snitch and... He did another one called Shotcaller, which was a really good prison film with that guy from Game of Thrones. Is it Nicholas? Nicholas Costabaldo. That's the one, yeah. He's a pretty good director, I think. But I do not like Gerard Butler. I hate the Olympus Has Fallen films. I think that they are xenophobic nonsense, like really nasty, horrible films. 
Although ironically, the only film of his that I actually really did like was Law Abiding Citizen, which was really, really yeah, reactionary in terms of um, its views of justice, but I thought actually was just so overblown that I quite enjoyed it. I never really liked him as an actor, so I was really surprised at how good he was in this film and how good this film was. I thought this was a really good disaster movie that kept everything ground level and it seemed it actually reminded me of Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds in terms of it being a very ground level view of a end of world catastrophe I think it runs a solid two hours and I was uh, gripped the whole way through yeah, so I think I think the film really works because it does. Yeah, because it doesn't suddenly go to eye in the sky. You know, it really, as you say, it keeps things on the ground level, keeps it you know pretty tight focus on the protagonists. And one thing I really like is it gives the and I'm going to completely undermine myself by failing to remember the name of her character, the Marina Baccarin character, some agency. She's not just kind of off screen with the focus. You know, it's not too much of a spoiler. I think to say the family does get split up at one point, but the the, the fact that her story is given you know almost pretty, well, pretty much. Equal Equal weight with uh, Gerard's, and there are, couple, there are just a couple of really nice scenes because the idea you know, that their marriage is kind of they're they're estranged for various reasons, and that there's just one moment in it quite early on I really really like where he's talking to his mate, and it's kind of like oh how's all that going, and they're being buddy buddy about it. And then there's a moment later on where yeah he's kind of you know stressed out because he's just got this message and he's acting a bit weird, and just one of his wife's friends just gives her a look as if to say you, you're right, you know what's going on here, and it's just a really nice really small moment of going like. Yes, these are both characters. We actually care about both of them. They have friends and lives. Alison. Alison Garrity. That's right, yeah. And I was really happy because this being a Gerard Butler film, I did actually expect her to get killed early on and it just to be him and, and the son. And I'm very glad that, as you said, it actually becomes a dual narrative film with the two of them. It was surprising in all the things that it did right. It was, I just thought that it was, it, yeah, it kept it, as I said, very, very ground level. I think it's like a mid-range budget film. It was about 35 million. So it's very, it conveys enough of of how out of control everything's getting, but doesn't go for big Roland Emmerich, Michael Bay spectacle. There are some explosions, there are some things in the sky, but it is always focused on the characters. And that just seemed really, really refreshing, including the bit when he gets the call on his phone or he gets the alert on his phone. And they're all in the car to go. And no one else in on their street has got the call. And there's like a real embarrassment and awkwardness there when he doesn't know why he's got it and no one else has. And everyone's kind of getting a bit angry, but knows that it's not his fault. And it's like, this is, the character work in this is actually very good. And it's, the performances are getting across things without having to have lots and lots of dialogue. And so and it's got a really kind of nice, neat supporting cast of the kind of people they encounter along the way for better or worse. And like how most people are just, most people will behave fundamentally, you know, will, will be okay, you know, and you know, may, might, might react a bit badly under stress. But, and then you've got a couple of people who are, you know, kind of letting the side down, speaking, you know, as a species. I thought that was slightly, slightly rose tinted without the film being able to predict the amount of, for example, toilet roll that people were hoarding at the beginning of lockdown and things like that. I was thinking... This is, I think, a very optimistic view of how resilient and good people would be if there was a comet hurtling towards the Earth. But yes, it was actually quite refreshing to see that as well. I just feel like there'd be a lot more public sex. Don't know why. I'm just throwing it out there. I did think that because there is that scene. There's a scene where people seem to just be having a party. And I was thinking, if you're told that the end is probably nigh, what would you do? I mean... If that was now, you wouldn't have to worry about COVID. So you just go, well, okay, right, like your pubs are open. So let's go and 
Let's have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> you fire up the IMAX. I want to watch The Dark Knight on a big screen for one more time. <laughs> so there were things like that in there that I thought were good. And yeah, it did have some really nice cameos in there, I thought, as well. I've always liked the actress Hope Davis. And so it was nice when she crops up in it. And the guy who plays her husband, David Denman, he was in The American Office and he was good in that as well. So he's, I think he was also in, in that Brightburn film. There's also um, Scott Glenn. And the always good to see, I can never remember how to say his name properly, is it Holt McCannelly from Mindhunters? He's just such a watchable presence, that guy. It's like, oh, good. I'm glad you're in here. He's so craggy. He has such a media, just kind of... Well, Scott Glenn's the craggy one. Yeah, but Holt McCannelly's just, uh, he's just like a solid, reliable presence. You're thinking, if he's in your corner, he's probably going to be all right. <laughs> yeah, he's right. He looks like a slightly more grizzled version of Stan from American Dad, essentially. Mm. Yes, he really does. Yeah, so I I thought this one was yeah, so probably just like yeah, it's like wow, this is the first Gerard Butler film that I've liked in ten years, and uh, again a bit like he was, good, he was good in Coriolanus. Well, do you know what? I never saw that, so yes, yeah, so I will give him the benefit of the doubt. And yes, I do need to watch that one. I think I, I think I, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed more Gerard Butler films than you have, which is not yeah, I'm not a big fan of the Has Fallen franchise, but I think Angel Has Fallen was probably slightly less reactionary than the other two. If, you know, and that was directed on, by the guy his... who did this, wasn't it? Um, Rick Roman Wall. Yes, yeah. Actually, I think, am I being too hard on Jeddard? I mean, I did like, I do like the How to Train Your Dragon films. <laughs> now, actually looking at it, oh, I did hear good things about Machine Gun Preacher, but never saw it. Yeah, no, actually, I think it is still just Law Abiding Citizen of, of the one that I've seen. Although, actually, this is a good time to give a quick shout out to Gamer. So Gamer made in 2009, which is a insane movie that goes from five star brilliance to two star yeah sometimes within a minute <laughs> it's just all over the place but sometimes it just sparkles so that's pretty good but yes i think that gerard should do more films like this and fewer films like the horrible has fallen series but he's got den of thieves 2 coming out Pfft, whatever it's funny that you've mentioned uh, gamer because i've just binged my way through eight seasons of dexter given that you know the antagonist in that film played by michael c hall just getting ready for the reboot or the yes, new one. Yes, the other, uh, the, uh, the sequel. Do you know what? Even the, you know what, admittedly I am background watching it, but the, even the parts that I don't think are great are better than I remember them being. I remember hating season six and it's, season six was fine. It's fine when you're not so waiting for them to reveal the twist. You know, you know he's coming. I never got into Dexter. It's one of those that, even though it's got some of my favourite actors in it, like I really would like to see John Lithgow play a psycho again. And he does that for an entire season of Dexter, doesn't he? So, yeah. Season four, widely regarded as the best. Yeah, I need to start chewing through some telly. Okay, then do you have anything else to say about Greenland? No, I mean, other than I, uh, hopefully this is going to be an, an oh-so-elegant segue. Um, it's one of those films that kind of had to bypass, largely bypass the cinema release. So actually, I know it got some sort of theatrical because it's more than recouped its budget. Um, but it's one of those uh, that... Would have been a pretty mid-sized blockbuster, and uh, but has ended up going, you know, bypassing and going straight to be the biggest thing on streaming for at least a couple of weeks. Much as, well, first Greyhound and now News of the World. That was a very good segue indeed. Yeah, so News of the World, the Paul Greengrass, Tom Hanks Western. So obviously they worked together on Captain Phillips a few years ago. We were lucky enough to see this on a screener that was sent to us during award season, weren't we? I watched this for the first time on on my computer and thought, I do hope this gets a cinema release because it looks really 
it looks like it will be quite spectacular on a big screen with some of these vistas. And then saw that it was going to Netflix. It's like, okay, that's a bit of a shame in one way, but it does mean that people will be able to see it. And then I watched it again yesterday for this. So do you like to do the synopsis for this one? A Civil War veteran agrees to deliver a girl taken by the Kiowa people years ago to her aunt and uncle against her will. They travel hundreds of miles and face grave dangers as they search for a place that either can call home. Okay? So what did you think of News of the World? I thought it was all right. I thought, you know, I thought the cinematography were, you know, was, was very impressive and the, sc- the score's great. I was slightly underwhelmed by the fact that this is a um, Paul Greengrass Tom Hanks collaboration. You know, I really was blown away by Captain Phillips. Uh, I think that was my first year at London Film Festival. And with this, it just felt to me a little bit journeyman. And it felt, you know, I, I, I love Tom Hanks. This role wasn't, you know, he was good in it. It's not much of a stretch from like essentially decent um, former Confederate who, you know, has charged with protecting this, this young girl. I didn't think there's very much remarkable in that. I thought I, th- I liked the modern day parallels in terms of there's, there's a strand going through about, you know, the fact that he delivers the news and false news and how news can be corrupted and news can be, you know, used as propaganda. And there are a couple of, you know, nice sequences involving, you know, one particular involving with a, with a shootout. But I just wasn't swept up in it. And maybe this was literally, you know, watching it at home on probably a Friday evening with my folks fairly unceremoniously, maybe in, in a darkened room back at the flat as i'm sure you know you would have watched it i would have i would have engaged with it slightly more but no it just it just felt very very safe yeah i disagree with that quite strongly (laughs) which is odd for us because we're new yeah Yeah, it's rare yeah yeah not in a kind of uh yeah i'm not going to say that you're history's greatest monster i'm not not saying that rob you're not history's greatest monster you're not history's greatest monster (laughs) (laughs) I really liked this and I really liked it the first time I saw it and then I really liked it yesterday when I watched it again and this for me is it's such a clever film this is there's so much going on in it and it's a film that I thought really conveyed the time in that everything moves at a certain pace and that pace is not very quickly but there's always something to be done and it just showed how hard it would be to survive in that world everything is waterlogged or it's incredibly baked by the sun and these characters are moving through it and there's a real sense of their history and of the violence that they've seen and in tom hanks's case the violence that he's done and the guilt that he feels from that that really comes through in the performances I and mean, it really is yeah the old cliche that america was born out of violence and is was a nation that is seeped in blood but the, you really get the sense of that in this this is a film that um occurs just after the civil war set in texas Luckily, uh... Luckily, we come from the notorious, from the famously pacifist UK. That's right. With yeah, absolutely that's... no crimes to account for. You'll get onto that with something else that I've watched a bit later. But um, so this is just after the Civil War. It's in Texas. The Northern Blues, yeah, the Yankees are almost like an occupying force, and they're not regarded with anything but animosity by the locals. Tom Hanks goes from town to town across the plains to deliver the news. That doesn't have to be his job, but he's choosing for that to be his job, and. Yeah, you get a sense that this is a scarred land and it's actually psychically scarred as well. There's a lot here that people are having to live with from what they've experienced. And the violence goes off in all different directions. The young girl that Tom Hanks, that he finds and then has to take to her aunt and uncle, she's a German immigrant. It's strongly suggested that the settlers that her parents were part of killed the Native Americans for that land. Then they were killed by the Native Americans in a reprisal and the girl was taken off with this Native American tribe and to all intents and purposes lives like a Native American. And it's like, I do like the way that this is 
a film in which violence is always just is always seen as the as the only answer and tom hanks is just moving through it trying to show that there are other options there as you said that plays to the fact that he's always very very decent in his movies but i thought that worked really well here and i did love the fact that it was about the news it was a western that went against the grain of print the legend so i don't know print the truth the truth is the thing that is going to inspire people and set people free and there's that scene when he talks to a large crowd and gets them motivated by telling them an inspiring true story that I thought was great. Yeah, there was. I just thought there was so much going on in this, and the that even though it's an incredibly visual movie, it's very well shot. His life isn't visual. His life is all about print. It's all about words. It was great. And both times I've watched it, I've, I've got really, really choked up at the end. I think it just has such a satisfying ending to this movie. Oh, yeah. So, so I really like this one. <laughs> I think it would have been good to see it on a big screen. You see, I, I, I will admit the circumstances I was seeing, I'm, I'm not going to say not ideal, but they didn't exactly lend themselves to a, to a grand cinematic experience. Based on your sort of more glowing appraisal, I, I may, I may, I may try, try to find time to give it another watch. I think it's worth it. Have you only seen it the once? I have only seen it the once. It holds up on a repeat viewing. It really does. I mean, it's one of those that I actually remembered it very, very well because I watched it, I think, just after Christmas. So it's only about five weeks ago or so. But I was surprised at how much had stuck with me, but also got some more out of it as well on a second viewing. And the young girl, Helena Zengel, who plays Johanna, the girl that he's having to take to her aunt and uncle, she's great in a performance that is, she does have dialogue, but you could say that it's largely wordless. I don't actually know if uh, she's a German actress. I, I know she did a German thing, film called um, System Stranger. Uh, I don't know if she's a fluent English speaker. Yeah, I'm not sure either. System Crasher, which was on at the LFF a couple of years ago, apparently is amazing. I haven't seen it. I think it's landed on either Amazon or Netflix. Apparently that is brilliant and she's brilliant in it. But this is the kind of thing that I was watching it thinking, I think she should get awards recognition for this role. She's so good and she conveys so much with her eyes and with her body language. And the way that she works with Hanks and, you know, the chemistry that they have together. There's a very good tweet where someone wrote, News of the world is like the Mandalorian, but it's not set in space. To which someone else replied, so it's a Western then. (laughs) (laughs) But there is a touch of that dynamic, which... Of course, you know, it goes back to Lone Wolf and Cub, which, of course, then also goes back to Road to Perdition, the gangster film with Hanks, where he's on the run with his son. And there are elements of that to this as well. But yeah, I know what you mean in terms of it being Greengrass in the different register. I mean, there are a couple of suspense moments in there. And the shootout is very, very good. It just seems as if, he's, as if he wants to do something else. And it just is so well-crafted. And I will watch it again this year because I just enjoy spending time with the characters in this world that they've created. One thing I love about Westerns is the supporting cast all have to have a certain look. I mean, one of the supporting actors in this, in a reasonably small role, is an actor called Ray McKinnon, who, you know, did a number of things, including he was reverend in Deadwood. Yeah. But he's got one of those faces that, like, almost doesn't look quite right when you put him in a non-period film. And I also love that he's one of the actors, you know, as talking about watch, re-watching Deadwood, I've also been, like, I also re-watched Burn Notice and... I've decided next week, you know, starting from I'm done with these, I'm going to start rewatching Justified from like the early mid 2000s character actors who got all the guest spots on TV shows. Okay. And it's great because, you know, for example, I think I think the best example of that is pretty much the whole cast of Prison Break or the majority of the cast of Prison Break. They are all actors who are character actors who had previously, you know, done bit parts on House and all the other shows until eventually you end up in the ensemble cast of your own TV show. 
it's been such fun actually background watching all this stuff and seeing actors like Ray McKinnon pop up and being like, okay, so at what point in your career did you do this? Was this before House? Was this before Prison Break? When does all this slot together? And then you figure out everybody just had a really busy five years of popping in and out of all these different shows. And then if, you know, even if they, I'm not going to say faded away, maybe my my awareness of them faded away as I moved on to different TV. But um, no, I think I think there's a, there's a great consolation map to be made of all these American character actors. They spent the early mid-2000s in, in sort of press each and or procedural TV. Yeah, I know what you mean. There's been a couple of things in the past year that I've seen. The most obvious one for me is um, Aya Cash in The Boys plays Stormfront. She was so great and I was like, so you clearly are someone that I should know more about because you're so good, but you just seem to have appeared from nowhere. And then you go back and see that, yeah, she's done like an episode here and there of stuff. I mean, actually with all The Boys, I think there's, well, um, some of them. I never watched, oh, what was that one that Anthony Starr was in? Which one? Banshee. Banshee, that's Banshee? it. Banshee? Yeah, yeah, I never saw that, but he's the lead in that, isn't he? So I wasn't aware of him, and it was like, okay, Homelander is brilliant, you are brilliant as Homelander. Have you been in anything before? Because I don't recognise you, but then, yeah, I saw that he was the lead for Banshee, and it's like, okay, right, well, now I need to watch Banshee then. A show that my mum raved about, so, yeah, I will have to give that a look. And when looking at News of the World, I did see that Greengrass's next project is 1984, so... That would be interesting to have another version of that. What, because... 1984? 1984. You mean like the 1984 that everything is like, 1984? Yeah, I think this one will just be just like a documentary, really. It will be interesting because, of course, the last 1984 was the John Hurt one that was made in 1984, which in a way I think is the definitive telling of that story. It just looks the part. Which story? <laughs> 1984. <laughs> um, and when was it released again? I think it was released in 1985. <laughs> that wasn't it, it was released in 1984. But Brazil was released in 85. And John Hurt is just Winston Smith. I mean, it's like, that's such perfect casting that it's like, who can you get to play Winston Smith who's going to be as good as John Hurt? I mean, I suppose someone like Andrew Garfield, maybe, or Ben Whishaw, maybe, someone like that. But they just seem a bit too young. Hmm. And as we said, Peter Cushing was very good in the Nigel Neal version that was made for TV during the 50s. But John Hurt, I always think, is the definitive Winston Smith. But anyway. Yeah, because, you know, even when John Hurt was a young man, he always had that kind of slightly world-weary feel to him. Absolutely. That, that I think somebody in that dystopian world does sort of... It can't be somebody fresh-faced, and it's got to have somebody who you feel like has spent, you know, decades living in this kind of grim... Yeah. Yeah, we'll see what happens with 1984, which seems... Yeah, that's going to be one that everyone's going to stampede to the cinema too after coronavirus. Heidi, <laughs> cheering up. Or oh, 1984. Let's go and see that. Okay, and so anything else to say about News of the World? I admit, perhaps didn't do it justice and be inclined to take it to, say, to accept your opinion on this one. Well, others have said things very, very similar to you. You are not alone in thinking that, so... Oh, thank God. Yeah, I know. It's like... <laughs> So you might not like it, but I think it's worth one more go just because um, I just really, really got on with the way that it told its story. But uh, tell me about Judas and the Black Messiah. The story of Fred Hampton, chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, and his fateful betrayal by FBI informant William O'Neill. Yeah, I mean, that is pretty fair. I, I don't know how much, if anything, you kind of you know about the history behind this. But um, essentially, um, as, as, you know, as the synopsis says, Fred Hampton was in a sort of very charismatic lead, you know, chairman of the, of the Illinois Black Panther Party, who at that point, you know, facing extreme opposition from the government. And, you know, they, they were a militant movement, but they were also about 
providing free school meals and free education. And, you know, they, they, they were socialists. They, they, you know, they stood against capitalism or what they saw as the tyranny of that. And in this, uh, Fred Hampton is played by um, Daniel Kaluuya, who is wonderful. I don't know if I've seen him in anything since Widows. And I know that as soon as I say that, you're, it will turn out that I definitely have. And I've completely missed or misplaced a brilliant performance from him. Oh, was he, he was in Queen Slim, which I didn't admittedly see, I don't think. Yes, yes, of course. That, but I think that's the, yeah, yeah, I haven't seen him in anything else apart from that since Widows. But he has had a few things out. But yes, um, yeah, he's good in Queen and Slim. He was a good baddie in Widows. Um, oh, he's great in Widows. And in this, um, there's an FBI informant called William O'Neill, um, who's played by Lakeith Stanfield. You know, so it's a get out reunion. Yeah. And essentially, he's a bit of a, he's a petty criminal who kind of gets caught up with the FBI. He essentially, he uses an FBI badge to... I won't spoil it, but yeah, essentially he gets swept by the FBI and they say, okay, you can go to jail for a bunch of time or you can go undercover with the Black Panthers. And Judas and the Black Messiah is a pretty bold title. And it's one that is actually, the film itself is far more subtle than that because you do get the impression of how important Fred Hampton is to the movement and to the community. There's one scene where he goes into basically a room full of, they described as rednecks with a Confederate flag on the wall and manages to talk about what unites them, how they are both being you know put down by the government and how they are both struggling to feed their kids. and and the fact that, you know, he was this kind of idealist who, about 21, I think, at the time, and essentially how the movement was undermined by the FBI and by forces within, it's a really powerful and quite subtle depiction of how the FBI systematically went about undermining these movements, you know, really, really insidiously. And the character of Hoover, of uh, J. Edgar Hoover, actually appears in it played by Martin Sheen under some pretty terrible prosthetics. Is it possible, actually, I was about to answer my own question, is it possible to play J. Edgar Hoover without terrible prosthetics, as Leonardo DiCaprio famously had in J. Edgar? But then I remember that um, Billy Crudup played him in Public Enemies. Yes, and did, that's right. when they said, this is J. Edgar Hoover, at no point was I going, but he looks like a person instead of a slightly melted candle. <laughs> so anyway, slight digression. And it's got Jesse Plemons playing an FBI guy who becomes the handler of, of O'Neill. And it's it's really interesting because you can kind of comparisons to be made with Selma and you know other films that that you know explore the era and their depiction of the FBI agents and in this most of the FBI agents even if they're not seem to be pissed most of the time you know they're all incredibly self satisfied they all seem like they've had a drink they're all laughing up their plans and. That's one thing that, you know, apart from great performance, both uh, Kaluuya and Stanfield, that really comes across in this film is the kind of smug self-satisfaction of the establishment in putting these movements down and feeling and feeling just so comfortable and and, so, and pleased with the way that they've gone about this. And um, it's directed by Shaka King, who I don't know off the top of my head if I've seen anything else he's he's done i'm just spending a moment to i think this might even be no i don't think it is his his directorial debut i'm quickly looking at his imdb page now but it's it's a really impressive slip piece of filmmaking i really got on with this and it's a bit of a shame that you know i think it's gone straight to hbo max and whether or not that's going to be a sufficient platform for this to kind of get awards attention but I think a lot of films are having a thinking about that as well, because you know, News of the World, I think, is a film that should get Oscar noms. It's like, well, is it going to be recognised? Because it's just dropped onto the streaming service. I think this year we will see what the impact is of COVID on the Oscars, which, of course, is the most important thing. And if this sort of film, if this one in particular goes under the wire... It'd be like a case of, okay, right, so if people are not forced in or they're not given lovely screeners, then they're just not watching these films. 
But yeah, so we'll I think, see. I think one, this is one of those films that's had you know had a bit of buzz going for quite a while. The off the festival circuit. Yeah, as you say, it's one of those that could end up just going under the wire, and which would be a real shame because, as I say, it's got some absolutely powerhouse performances in it. And some scenes in particular that, actually, you know, the more I think about it, really have stuck with me. There's, there's a really horrible one. Actually, I don't, don't know if I want to spoil it, involving, involving LBJ. LBJ? God. Involving uh, Edgar Hoover and um, the, uh, the Jesse Plemons character, where he's just... There's one particular line that he says. He, he presents him with a hypothetical situation that is just so, yeah, I, I can't say anything without spoiling it, but it's just one of those where the character really is put in an impossible position where, it, where he, of basically he can't call his boss out. Right. And even if he could, he doesn't have the mentality to do that. Even if he was capable of articulating why what's just been said to him is so objectionable, he, could, he still couldn't call out the person who said it. Well, that's interesting because I think this is set during the 60s. So that was at the time that Hoover purposely recruited a certain type of person into the FBI, a white male who wouldn't question authority. So it sounds like this is a person who, even if he yeah, realises that that's not entirely on really, is it? It wouldn't be within his makeup to be able to question that authority. Yeah, it's a fascinating monster, is J. Edgar. I think they've just there's just been a, a uh, documentary released on him, more particularly about smear campaign and the bugging that launched against uh, Martin Luther King. And I do think between this and that and Public Enemies to a degree, Jagger, and the film that came out a couple of years ago now called Seaberg, about Gene oh, Seaberg, yes. um, yeah, who of course was also targeted by Hoover. There's a very interesting Jagger Hoover, what a bastard, expanded universe to... Uh, <laughs> yes, put together like a film festival about that. Who was the... Um... Which, you know, in other words, just, you know, when I say expanded universe, I just mean the universe... Like real, real life. That's right. Everyone's bloody J. Edgar, aren't they? In the uh, particularly in the Republican Party. But um, who was it? Kristen Stewart. Was she Gene Seberg yeah, in that movie? She was, and it's a film that I watched at the London Film Festival, and I wanted it to be much better than it was. Yeah, that's the reason why I never went to it. Yeah, when you talk about it, it was like, okay, all right, I don't know. Okay, I might not rush to that one. Is there anything else about Judas and the Black Messiah? It's well worth a look. There's a, again, there's a phrase in it called, uh, what the Black Panthers describe, what they do is, they call it heightening the contradictions, kind of making people more aware of, as they you know, the inconsistencies and the, the, uh, and the hypocrisies within capitalism. And I think that's one thing the film that really does well, is kind of drawing attention to that. As a segue from the Black Panthers in that film to something I've been watching, so BBC iPlayer has just released all of Adam Curtis's new series, Can't Get You Out of My Head. And I've seen the first five episodes. It's a documentary series. It's epic. Each episode's about 70 minutes long. And the final episode's two hours. And I've got that one to watch. It's amazing. It's about about the world, really, since the 1950s, so just after World War II, and how ideologies have been failing, and countries and groups within society have just tried to find different ways to either replace the ideology or to come up with something new and try something different and like all of that and Curtis's stuff it takes very very disparate threads and brings them together into a very very compelling argument there's a subplot in there because it does play like a big sprawling epic that deals with this woman called Afeni Shakur who was a leading light within the Black Panthers also Tupac Shakur's mother there has to be a film about this woman. She was absolutely convinced that one of the members within her particular Black Panther sect was an undercover cop, and she was shouted down by all the men. Of course, she was right. 
And it was the undercover cop that was the one that was trying to get them to be more violent and to start a bombing campaign against chain stores like Macy's. And she was one saying, no, I don't feel comfortable doing this. I don't think we should be doing this. I think we should be feeding kids and we should be doing these things in the community and that sort of thing. And it all went to court and she represented herself. And it was just, it's just this extraordinary story. And I was thinking, oh, this is, this is a movie. There has to be a film about a Fanny Shakur, but not sure if there is though. But yeah, I strongly recommend Can't Get You Out of My Head. It goes, some of the characters in it, and like all the great Adam Curtis stuff, he has such a great team of video researchers and archivists. They just find the most amazing footage from around the world of things that have happened. One of the main players in this big story is um, a woman called, I think her name is Jiang Xing, Chairman Mao's wife. Again, it's like, why isn't there a film about this woman? She is extraordinary. She's absolutely insane, but she is extraordinary. Yeah, so I strongly recommend that series. It's very good. So yeah, it's interesting what you're, um, you're saying about FBI informants trying to provoke more severe violence as, as, you know, as an excuse to crack down. Because yeah, that's, that's something that also features in Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah, the documentary sometimes is a bit despairing because you can just see the cycles going round and round and round. But it is also absolutely fascinating. So what you're saying is I've got a choice between watching that about the cycle perpetuating itself, or I could just watch uh, Won't You Be My Neighbour again. <laughs> yeah, you could do that. Actually, watch Can't Get You Out of My Head because I think it's one of the best things that I've seen on TV in years and years and years. But I do like Adam Curtis's stuff anyway. Stuff like The Power of Nightmares and The Trap. Absolutely brilliant. But at the end of it, treat yourself to Won't You Be My Neighbour. Cup of tea, a biscuit, and Won't You Be My Neighbour. That will help bring you back to the surface. <laughs> How long is each part? Is each part feature length? Yeah, each episode. There are six episodes. The first five are around 70 minutes. The final episode, there is two hours. But to show how good it is, I was very happy when I saw that that final episode is two hours. Because you know it's got so much stuff to cover. I mean, it's going to go into Brexit. It's going to go into Trump. It's all these different things. And I've not actually watched it yet. But yes, I should be diving into it this week. What was the other film you want to talk about? Well, do you want to go first? And then we can finish on Falling. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, quickly going from a very good and powerful documentary and actually going from 1984 as well into, so from Orwell to a bit of Kafka, um, I watched a documentary called Assassins, which is directed by Ryan White. And it's about the two young women who accidentally or unwittingly assassinated Kim Jong-un's half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, in Kuala Lumpur Airport. And the women were Siti Aisha, who is Indonesian, and Duan Thi Hong, who is Vietnamese. So they were out of their countries. It's just one of those great documentaries. It's because the story itself is just so bizarre and so compelling. You can't, it's one of those things where you just couldn't make up that it happened. It was just so, it's just so audacious what the North Korean government did. And the film doesn't have to present one argument that you can choose to believe in or not. It's so obvious that the North Korean government under Kim Jong-un sanctioned the assassination of his half-brother, who was the rightful heir to the throne, but was then usurped by Kim Jong-un because Kim Jong-un's mum was very, very pushy and basically convinced Kim Jong-il, their dad, that it should be Kim Jong-un and not Kim Jong-nan who should take over the country. But yeah, it goes into the politics of North Korea. It goes into the history of that. But it's also one of those things that goes into things like social media culture and prank culture and chasing fame and maybe being just a bit naive about in the desire to be famous, you don't really pay attention to what you're doing or what's happening around you. 
But these two young women were charged with murder. They were charged with murder by the Malaysian government who really just wanted to pin it on them. But yeah, it's one of those things that because we live in a social media age and these are young women who both, I think, just wanted to be more than they were and you know, wanted to be famous, they very helpfully just recorded everything and put it up, put it up on Facebook. So there's so much stuff. But there's a really, really amusing clip of one of them waiting for a flight and filming herself with one of the North Korean handlers who was arranging for this here. And he just looks really annoyed that she keeps filming him. It's kind of blackly comic. It's a Kafkaesque nightmare that they were caught in because they just had no idea what they'd done. And you just realise, my God, the vast machine can basically like you know, swallow you up and spit you out. But because there is so much CCTV footage and also footage that they took, it's a film that can actually just dramatise its own story, even though it's a documentary. So yes, that's called Assassins. That's out, out now to rent across all the digital platforms, and it's well worth a go. Yeah, so I've, I've, heard, I've heard very good things about that. And with your own recommendation, I definitely will have to check that out. Um, so yeah, I guess uh, the last one that we've got, I've got to touch on, on today is uh, Falling, feature directorial debut of Viggo Mortensen. And it's apparently very kind of loosely based on some personal experiences that, you know, he, he's had. He is also the you know, one that co-lead in it, um, but he was, he was never apparently meant to be acting in it. He, ha- he ultimately had to in order to secure funding. Oh, okay. Because it's got, it's got a very impressive, but again, you know, going back to very character actor cast. There are some really good supporting actors in it. Um, there's, you know, Terry Chen and Laura Linney. And in one, one scene in particular, David Cronenberg is a proctologist. They're really good friends anyway, but Viggo Mortensen's in Cronenberg's next film, isn't he? Yeah, is this the first time they've worked together since Dangerous Method? Yeah, that was after Eastern Promises, wasn't it? Um, mm. Was that Cronenberg's last film? Had he done one no, was that then? Map to the Stars? Map to the Stars, that was it, yes, but Viggo Mortensen wasn't in that one, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so this is the last one since A Dangerous Method, which is a really underrated film and more people should have seen it. Uh, essentially, Falling is about a father-son relationship between uh, Viggo Mortensen, a character called John, and his father, Willis, played by Lance Henriksen. And uh, essentially his father, who's you know, never been an easy man, has you know, started to develop dementia. And as such, you know, he's having to support him a lot more. He's having to move across the country away from the farm he's always lived on to L.A. And essentially, Willis is just a deeply unpleasant man. At his best, he's foul-mouthed and curmudgeonly. And at his worst, he goes on just horrific rants, horrific, homophobic, misogynistic rants. And it does feel like that film, the film could be very, you know, affliction. The film could be incredibly hard going, but there's a humour and a forbearance to it, even though there are, again, there are some scenes which are difficult. And the film is essentially partly to do with memory in terms of, you know, the weirdest character experiencing dementia. And there's lots of associative editing between, you know, he'll see something like, you know, the colour of someone's tie and flashback to, and that colour years before. And essentially the film is structured using that kind of motif uh, and, and in terms of how it jumps back and forth between the present day and the past with uh, the John character as a child and at various ages and with the Willis character being played by Sphera Goodnesson, who I, who's an Icelandic actor, um, who was in, who was uh, Mikael Blomqvist in, in the, uh, the original The Girls in the Spider's Web. And uh, yeah, it's a really interesting film it's interesting what you call little film, but there's a lot of kind of emotional resonance in it. And Viggo Morton is very good as this guy who's, you know, having to show such forbearance. He's gay. And as you can imagine, his father isn't hugely accepting of that fact. And there's Laura Linney who plays the sister in it. And there's, there's, she's only in sort of one scene, 
but there's it's just it's really heartbreaking a scene with her just trying to desperately be pleasant and upbeat stuck in a conversation with a man who is neither of those things and for Lance Henriksen it's been such a great actor for for so many years my sort of first knowledge of him really kicks off with Terminator and Aliens but you know I think his career started in the early 70s and this is such a showcase performance in terms of this guy who is deeply horrible, but through these flashbacks, you begin to at least, you know, the film never condones him and, and the film never really softens him, but it's kind of tries to get you to understand who this man is and the impact that he's had on his family. And yeah, it's, it's well worth a look. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily build entirely satisfyingly. It's a little film. And I have to be quite a big fan of those. Just a little well-observed, with a small, well-perfectly observed moment. So it's like a character piece more than a big melodrama. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's just a really interesting, well-acted little film. Something to say about memory and, you know, I'm lucky enough to get on incredibly well with my parents. I can't imagine being in anything resembling this situation. And I I don't know, you know, how reflective, I know this is very, very loosely semi-autobiographical in some aspects, and I have no idea what Viggo Mortensen's relationship was like with his own dad, but it really shows off Mortensen as a director and as an actor, and um, it's a film I'm glad to have caught. It's it's currently available on PVOD. I recommend everyone checking it out. Okay, cool. I do like him as an actor. I think he's very good, and it'd be interesting to see, because this is his directorial debut, isn't it? So it'd be interesting to see what he's like as a director. It sounds like he does a pretty good job. Let's say a lot of it's in the editing in terms of the associative editing, but he's very much an actor's director. There, there are some scenes which are basically shot with long close-ups. He's pretty selfless in terms of it's a co-lead, but it's weighted towards Willis and Willis's experience. And John's mainly marked by his forbearance and you know the fact that you know him and his him and his, him and his husband Eric and their uh, and their their daughter, you know, kind of this 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 figure in their midst. It's a film I really liked. Yeah. So you could say that, that the Lance Henrik Terrace is quite damaged. So he's bruised Willis. Bruised, yep. Sorry. Bruised, yep. That's terrible. <laughs> I mean, it's... I like to think that at least we haven't, you know, set the bar in such a point that, you know, that we've, 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 ne- we've never falsely advertised ourselves on this pod. This is, the, I think, the point where I need to remind our viewers that I don't talk to people very often because we're in lockdown and I live alone. So Rob's going to be probably one of two people I speak to this week. So this is what happens, I'm afraid. Um, I, I do talk to people, so I don't have that excuse. Yes. But I do have the excuse that I don't talk to people in depth. And the, this past weekend, most of the words that have come out of my mouth have been words that have been written down by somebody else a long time ago. So, Yes, you were doing some Shakespeare, weren't you? I was doing a, doing a weekend of bits and pieces all around Valentine's Day. Sounds very good. Okay, then, so that's... It's a pretty good roster of films. That's the thing is that... I think we talked about it before, but even though the cinemas are closed, there are still good films coming out. It's just that the way that we watch them is obviously quite dramatically changed. Yeah, watching the cautiously optimistic Prime Minister press conference tonight was... It would be like, okay, so we might get back into cinemas by June time... So Black Widow might still get released at the cinema. I mean, that seems to be the only one that I think the big one that's going to get released before Bond in October, apparently. But yeah, so it could be that these films start going back to a normal release pattern by the end of the year. Yeah, so I think there's a feature to be done on all the big movies that you really should see that were kind of lost by being pushed straight onto streaming services. Yeah, I think I think it's been a tough time for 
but it's been it's been a tough time for cinema in general. I think I think I think the bigger films have, have tended to be just be pushed back. Uh, it's been a tough time for like the mid-sized films. I, yeah, I think films like anything you know from Greenland down, sort of you know Judas and the Black Messiah in terms of scale, that kind of just gets swept into the uh, the streaming mill. Mm. Um, but I also I do think it's been a good time, probably quite a good time for a small cinema films that you know may or may not have got a theatrical release, but have become kind of slightly more hidden gems that people otherwise wouldn't necessarily seek out because they can just go to the cinema and watch whatever. That they they may be more inclined to to seek out since that's not currently an option. Well, Saint Maud did very well, I think, because of that because there wasn't really anything else released at the time, so um, it did narrow people's options. So they were then forced to go and see this amazing movie. Cool. Well, as you introed, would you like to outro? Unless there's anything else you want to talk about? No, I think I think we've uh, I think we've managed to, to to pack them in. Yeah, indeed. So, what are we going to talk about next? And it's the fifteenth today, so we should get another one out because we'll be looking at Justice League when that comes out. Yeah, we have to look at what we're going to do before that. There's got to be something, right? <laughs> For the love of God, there'll be something, and it will be worth the wait, I'm sure. Well, in which case, I guess all there is to say is, uh, well, thank you very much for listening. No, because we haven't done plugs yet. <laughs> the thing we ah, always okay. forget. I guess all there is to say is, where can we find your writing, Mr. Daniel? Well, thank you for asking. Yes, you can find my writing at electric-shadows.com. You can find me on Twitter at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel, forever locked to that. You can find me on Letterboxd at robdan75. More importantly, you can find the podcast on Twitter at MovieRobcast. And yeah, I think I think that's it for the plugs from me. And how about you? Where can people find your writing and stuff? Yeah, um, well, you can find me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace and find my work at uh, Of All The Film Sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. Cool. I promise not to interrupt you this time. Well, in which case, I guess all there is to say is... Thank you very much for listening. And thank you very much for listening. Repeat after me.